Explore the new AFIF AHA guideline and key highlights for supporting and guiding your severe symptomatic aortic stenosis patients at heartvalve.com. This message is brought to you by Edward Fleifeinfuss. Connect with us at heartvalve.com. You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio. Today, Roxana Mehran talks about clinical trials in the time of pandemic with Clyde Yancey, Mark Banaka, and Mark Sabatine. Hello, everyone. It's Roxana Moran from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, and we're here on Rock's Heart Radio. Welcome to, to the show. And what a fantastic, fantastic lineup we have today. Literally, truly an A-team. I feel like I'm going to be interviewing the rock stars. And of course, I'm going to start by introducing my guests today. But let me, before that, tell you our topic. It's about clinical trials in the time of pandemic, is the future bright? What have we learned? How do we move forward? And I am really, really lucky, and I'll go by alphabetical order of my wonderful guests today, Dr. Mark Banaka from University of Colorado, professor of medicine, director of vascular research here with us today. Hello, Mark, wonderful to have you. Next, Dr. Professor Dr. Mark Sabatine from the Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is the distinguished chair in cardiovascular medicine, the head of Timmy Study Group, uh, and a professor at Harvard, and an incredible, with incredible insights on clinical trials. And we're just so thrilled to have you, Mark. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I learn so much from you every week on these meetings that we have at JAMA Cardiology. And it's just wonderful to have you here. I think it's your first uh, with us. And of course, at last but not least, a true rock star and an incredible mentor to so many of us. And of course, deputy editor of the JAMA Cardiology is Dr. Clyde Yancey here with us today. He's vice dean of diversity and inclusion, chief of cardiology in department of medicine at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine, and just an incredible mentor to me and to so many of us, I'm sure, here on the line. And of course, it's wonderful also to have conversation with him every week. I learn, I just am with these amazing editors, deputy editors, Mark and Clyde. Welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks so, so much, Mark. Uh, thank you, Clyde. So now I'm gonna call you guys by your first names, but since we have two Marks that are spelled exactly the same, so I'll just go Mark B, Mark S. <laughs> so we'll try to do this. It's it's. Uh, it's wonderful to have you all. Um, let's begin um, the pandemic. Um, I'm going to go to you, uh, Mark, Mark Sabatine first, uh, because I think um, you're running a huge uh, study group. You have clinical trials that are actively enrolling. Um, what's been the effect? How are you uh, handling uh, both enrollment, retention, and ascertainment of events at a, in a time of pandemic? How did you, how did you do it? Yeah, well, those are great questions, Roxanne. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has, you know, upended everyone's life, both personally and professionally. Um, you know, and I think for the the clinical trial uh, enterprise, it, it was a, a huge challenge. Uh, you know, obviously, enrollment you know, ground to a halt as the pandemic first hit. Um, 
you know, overcoming that then just took time the same way in the hospital, we then developed procedures for how people could safely come in uh, and have appropriate protection with masks and appropriate distancing and, and hand sanitizers, etc. But, you know, for, for the, the, the clinical enterprise, you know, there are, are additional issues. Um, and it, it also wasn't a chance for, for progress. I think we saw that for the many different COVID-specific trials, where even IRB approvals, you realize that you could do things much, much more quickly. And so the usual tempos and barriers, people start to look to break that down. So one example is a study drug, which you know, traditionally people would need to come into the site and get study drug, and that maximizes accountability for the investigational product, which is good. Um, but even before we had advocated in trials that it would be better to have the flexibility to be able to mail study drug. And oftentimes sponsors would say, oh, what about chain of custody? And we worry about it. We saw during the pandemic, we all started living through Amazon where everything was being delivered to our house. Um, maybe not the same level of importance as study drug, but, but that became the, the new norm. And so then sponsors, I think, quickly started to, to embrace that. Um, you know, the issue for telemedicine, which we then did during the pandemic for audio, video uh, visits, obviously one could do for, for the clinical trial. The FDA, I think, traditionally had the view that you needed the in-person visit. If you weren't looking at the subject across the table from you, you really couldn't ascertain the adverse events, but I think people are now more flexible for that. But then the third issue you raised is, you know, what about retention for these individuals? And, you know, I do worry in the decentralized view for it, um, that it, it, it's a challenge, that people don't feel part of the same community. Um, you know, there are ways to do that with mobile devices, but we need to be mindful that many of the patients we look at in cardiology trials are older individuals who may not be as mobile savvy as other uh, as others might be, so we worry a lot for that, and I think it's probably not dissimilar to what's happening just in general work, where there's now a hybrid approach, a recognition that work isn't commuting in at nine a.m. and going home at five p.m. for everyone. There needs to be flexibility. I think that's the same now for clinical trials. Where can we do stuff that'd be responsive to subjects, and if they want to have study drug uh, delivered? If some of their visits can be through a, a video uh, conference, uh, you know that would be fine. Other times, they would need to, you know, come in and be assessed if there's greater complexity. No, those are really incredible points, uh, Mark Panaka. Uh, your uh, your input on, especially with peripheral vascular disease and vascular research, where we know that vascular disease is underdiagnosed to begin with. <laughs> now, how do you find? patients and how do you keep them in a trial? And what have you done to make sure that your trials remained active and uh, successful? Yeah, well, well I, I agree with all the, the points uh, Dr. Sabatine made. And, I, and you know, I think we, we have learned how to enroll, um, obviously now with special sort of recognition of you know, who, who doesn't have COVID or who does have COVID and how those might impact endpoints in these trials. But, but I think similar to what Dr. Sabatine said, 
you know, th this has allowed us to make some advancements um, in terms of how we screen for patients, recruit and follow them. You know, we, we have shifted from, in many sites, sort of an individual PI and study coordinator to screening across health systems and using EMRs to identify patients and virtually consenting you know, actually can be very efficient, you know, over the phone, using an e-consent, sending, you know, texting someone the consent form rather than having them come in initially for a study visit, depending on the study design. But you can actually decouple some of the testing from the consent process and the randomization. And we, we've, in, in, in a couple of trials, actually also used follow-up uh, through passive means in addition to the study visits. So as Dr. Sabatine said, you know, how much do you get over the phone? And some of these, we have parallel systems where we can actually tell that a, a you know, subject had an event before the site PI knows because you know, it flows in through the EMR. But I, but I think, it, it, as Dr. Sabatine said, I think the downside to all of this is the relationship, right? We, we know that, especially for long-term trials, patients with vascular disease or other diseases, that really that relationship with the coordinator and the PI is important for retention and, and for drug adherence. And you need to find a way um, to keep the, the subject engaged and to make them feel that they have a relationship with the site. And I think that that's a work in progress, Dr. Sabatine said, a hybrid approach, but, but very true for vascular disease too. Yeah, well, incredible, really great comments. Um, now, Clyde, coming to you, um, there is no stronger reminder uh, than the COVID pandemic to show us the diversity and the disparities of care. And during a pandemic, imagining that um, not only our everyone is thinking about this uh, and trying to get uh, more of a diverse patient population into a clinical trial, we were obviously paralyzed by the, by the effects that it had in those communities. What are your what 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 did you take away from this? And um, before we get to the positive lights, is what did you learn from this in terms of the communities of color and uh, Hispanic and uh, non-white communities? So Roxana, this is really an important conversation, and I really compliment Mark Sabatini and Mark Banaco for really helping us revisit some of the exigencies of trying to execute clinical trials in crisis mode. Oddly enough, even though we discovered the depth of disparities during the time of COVID-19 at a public health level, the execution of clinical trials was actually more inclusive than it had ever been before. I think the spirit of crisis really brought everyone to rapt attention and said it's time to participate, it's time to contribute. But the registry data that were so informative about the experience of COVID-19 in multiple populations were quite inclusive. Let me remind you that the vaccination data represented amongst the most inclusive data we've ever seen in a clinical trial, doubling that that we typically see in a randomized heart failure trial or ACS trial. So there was something about the call to arms that got everyone's attention. The key is can we capture that going forward so that we can say maybe out of this crisis, we found a way to engage other populations. I think that's important. So what is the silver lining? What, did, what, are, what is it? How do we grasp that? This to me is a huge, what you just said, I think is one of the most important comments here in terms of revolutionizing clinical trials. So it's really a straightforward answer. In a time of crisis, we no longer went to Northwestern, the Timmy Group, University of Colorado, Colorado and Mount Sinai to establish trials and recruit patients. We went to the community. 
we recruited a different set of investigators, a different set of community hospitals. You know that I lead the NIH warp speed clinical trials looking for therapeutics that will treat COVID-19, specifically within the active group from which we've had a number of really important publications, at least describing the best approach to antithrombotic therapy in this setting. Because we went from previously established patient participatory networks under the auspices of PCORI, we already had a denominator locked and loaded, ready to go. And so we were able to recruit very quickly. I mean, in the span of a year's time, we enrolled 5,000 patients in our NIH active trials. We tested the likelihood of study of 64 different agents and used a very deliberate process to come down to those that we followed through. We've never had that kind of speed in the establishment of a clinical trial. So again, out of a crisis mode, we went to a different set of investigators. We recruited a different set of patients. Out of a crisis mode, we went to the community first, to the already established patient networks, had rapid uptake out of a crisis mode. Rather than taking a single drug that a sponsor was championing, we took multiple drugs and went through the science and say, which one makes the most sense? Let's study that drug. So those are the things that are, are enduring that can go forward. Now, the one other peculiarity, I'm going to switch on you, Roxanne, and go to the heart failure space. We had difficulty in the heart failure trials because the placebo event rates plummeted. Now, why was that? Did people stop going out to eat? Were people so concerned about COVID that they actually decided to take their medicines as prescribed? And so we had a much more substantial therapeutic effect. We need to understand those. We don't know the reason. I don't want to pretend that we do. But we do know that every single trial that was trending towards a positive outcome lost that trend when you earmarked it March of 2020 when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. So lots of lessons to learn. Some that won't be replicable because we won't be conducting trials, hopefully, in a setting of COVID-19, but others that are worth carrying forward. And it's, it's a lesson learned in recruitment. It's a lesson learned in improving the diversity. It's a lesson learned in innovation. And one last thing, you know, we just came back from American Heart Association meeting. Did we not see more innovation there? Chief HF, absolutely no patient engagement whatsoever, a fully executed clinical trial. Looking at some of the atrial fibrillation trials, thinking of triggers, and end of one randomization where the patient decided which variable to test. If we can continue to execute in that manner for the right study concept and in the right manner, we may find that we can actually do clinical trials in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to, I have it on my list, virtual trials. How do we, how do we expand and, and leverage off of these uh, to the next level? And I'd love to hear from Mark. Mark, I, I know you work a lot, you know, you, we, you work on so many different places, but certainly, and I, I do too, and so does Mark Banaka, we, we are all working with industry. They're not going to want to hear this, or, or are they? Uh, and will they embrace some of this? And will virtual trials actually be, um, could work into, into this space? Um, what do you think, Mark? Yeah, no, I, I think I think certainly there is uh, a desire by industry certainly to do trials um, more efficiently, you know, costing less, uh, uh, you know, more quickly because the, you know, the the current bills for them are just are just astronomical. It is important to distinguish, you know, the the agents one is studying, and so um, uh, you know, as Clyde pointed out, the ability um, to study existing drugs and say for COVID-19, what's the right anticoagulant to give? Should they get antiplatelet therapy? 
um, you know, that we're able to sort of leverage, let's be nimble and quick about that because there's no registration pathway for that. As you point out, Roxana, once it's a registration pathway trial, then there are concerns for what the FDA will mandate. And while I think there have been many thought leaders at the FDA advocating doing nimbler trials, there still remains a bit of a dichotomy between those proclamations and then the review process, which is more like an IRS tax audit. Yeah, um, exactly. And so the, the sponsors, it's their job to make sure that their drug makes its way through. And so you know, they're going to be risk averse for that. Um, but I think certainly the, the sponsors have had a chance to learn as their drugs are being tested for other indications where it's a phase four trial, where you don't need to have necessarily the same uh, level of review. So I think it'll depend. You know, the, the early phase where you don't know the drug requires much closer contact because right. there could be unforeseen safety issues and you can't do that in a virtual environment. The phase threes, one can be, I think, far more focused and bring in some of the, the hybrid models we've been talking about. And then for the phase fours, again, one can be far, far more flexible. So I think industry is keen to do that and it will require a partnership with the FDA to define you know, what is truly necessary. And as Clyde pointed out, I think we've learned a lot that we can do high quality trials and don't, don't need to triple check everyone's blood pressure or their waist circumference. That, that's not giving us useful information. Yeah, no, great. And Clyde, I, I want to come back to you uh, just quickly before uh, we finish off to, to give us the lens, the future, into the future and, and give us the positive because we're all exhausted and we want to hear what's going to be great and wonderful about clinical trials. Yeah, so I, I line it with the exhaustion piece. But <laughs> let, me just, let me just say going forward, it's all contextual. Mark is spot on. If we're talking about a new molecule, we really have to be very deliberate and absolutely make certain that efficacy is clear and safety has been fully evaluated. But particularly for these strategy trials that we're doing more and more of, the opportunity to innovate and do them differently and understand that we can understand more of the hows that we should practice instead of the what's that we should do. I think that's really a key consideration we can take away. I think the other key consideration is that by expanding our investigative network for the right hypothesis, we can probably get to an answer sooner. And then finally, I think patient engagement is really, really helpful. Again, we just recently saw clinical trials where patients were part of the author stream on a randomized controlled trial. Why? Because they made a contribution to the design of the study. So these are things that allow us to iterate the traditional model that we've known, but carry forward some new concepts. Roxana, thank you wonderful, for letting me. Wonderful, thank you so much. But uh, so thank you, Clyde. I know you have to go off, but I want to continue this conversation just for a few more minutes with Mark Vanaka and uh, Mark Sabatine. Uh, Mark Vanaka, um, your work with uh, peripheral vascular disease, I can imagine that technology can be used in so many ways, all of the walking distances and the kinds of things that we could pick up on vascular patients where uh, a lot of this can be collected using uh, current technology that's available to all of us. I watch my steps every day. How do you see the future? What's your uh, future futuristic view for your trials? Well, it's a great question, Roxana. I mean, you know, functional outcomes are important outcomes and, and they're approvable outcomes actually, but you know, the, the issue has always been variability and your ability to discriminate, you know, a treatment effect when, when you have variable testing. And so the, 
traditional model has been, you know, even to Mark Sabatine's earlier point of, of what we did in the past of flying people all over the world to kind of measure the distance between cones to make sure everyone's course length is the same or that they're not walking from carpet to tile and all this sort of stuff to try to minimize variability. I mean, obviously we can't, you know, COVID is forced to change there, but but what, where is it headed? Um, you know, we, we are looking at things like virtual six minute walk, we're actually testing them in a, in a randomized fashion to see if we can control variability. But, but I think what's on the horizon is probably wearables and other things. I, I don't think it's so simple though. Um, and some of the initial work with wearables and actigraphy show that, that you know, there's a lot of variability in those data and you get a wealth, a lot of information, but how you measure the impact of an intervention is, is not so straightforward. So, you know, I think there's probably an intermediate virtual step of where we can do things like six minute walk and, and understand um, functional outcomes without being so wed to the brick and mortar institution or to, to traditional methods. But, but I think that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of using wearables to really understand function and, and what to measure and how and when and people. Um, so it'll be a, a, you know an area in evolution. So I'm just hearing that uh, I think the future is going to be a hybrid one on so many levels uh, for our meetings, for our investigator meetings, for our meetings, scientific meetings, for our even enrollment and engagement of our patients. Is that a is that a good is that a correct way to think about this, Mark? Is that going to be our new normal, Mark Sabatine? Yeah, I I, I think it will. I mean, beyond the scope of what you said, it, it's. Um, the hybrid offers challenges. There was a great article in the New York Times this morning about you know, the hybrid workplace. And in, uh, in some ways, it's the best, in some ways, the worst of both worlds for, for combining it. But, but I think for the clinical trials, I think um, having, if you will, sort of a, a customer-centric view, and the customer is the subject in the trial, I think that makes sense. And the routine driving into the office for stuff that doesn't need to be done that way. Um, uh, you know, it's good to have the flexibility, but, but clinically, I, I think probably both of you have also seen, you know, there are patients you can say, let's, let's do a virtual visit. And they're like, what do you mean virtual? I want to come in and see you, you know, that that's what I expect for the interaction. So I think there'll always be a place for that, even if we didn't mandate it. But I think, you know, as people get more comfortable with a, sort of a hybrid approach, taking advantage of that and streamlining where we think it's wise to do that. And for subjects who are willing to do that, but still stay engaged, that, that I think then is, is a real win for the field. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think just some final parting words um, about uh, the future. I mean, I feel like, um, I really believe it's gonna be better. Uh, I have to believe that. And I believe that we will have closer contact with our patients through these uh, interesting and new, uh, new ways to, to connect with them, whether it's through a virtual world or a real one right here in the hospital, in our offices, in our visits, et cetera. And I believe that we will continue to educate patients and um, widen our net in, in bringing more diverse patients into clinical trials so that when they come out, they're applicable and the implementation science is not as outdated as, as what we have today. I believe the future is bright. I know that we will, with, with people like you at the helm, Mark Sabatine, Mark Banaka, Clyde Yancey, 
And a lot of the people who are really devoted in making sure that not only is the science absolutely has the highest integrity, but that we're more inclusive, we remove barriers, we go to communities and we enroll patients and disseminate the message in a very positive, transparent and honest way. And I think that to me is where we're going in the future. I hope you're all in agreement to that, right, Mark and Mark? Yeah, I would agree. And I, I, you're being too modest. You're also at the helm of that ship. Uh, that <laughs> tremendous study. So I think with all of us together, you know, we, we're the ones who can affect that change. And I think one of the biggest things through all of this is how close all of our academic research organizations are working together. Whereas in the past, it used to be, well, Duke runs this, the Brigham runs, you know, the Timmy group runs this. And I think we're seeing so much more collaboration and all of that is again, another very, very positive way forward. So thank you both for being here. And as well as uh, Clyde, what a great lineup and uh, we'll see you back. I'm gonna invite you back. I, I don't know, you don't know what's next. Just tell me what's next. I hope you all have a great, great uh, rest of the week. And thank you for your time in this very, very busy time. Yeah, th thanks for having us, Roxanne. It was wonderful. Thanks so much, Roxana. Thank you both. Bye. Bye-bye.